This week's episode is presented by 1895 Films and our content partners, Peter Hamilton's Documentary Business, a newsletter for documentary professionals, and Sunny Side of the Dock, the international marketplace for documentary and narrative experiences, coming to La Rochelle, France in June 2022. We're at the lounge of the Holiday Inn in Cocoa Beach, Florida, on a warm spring night in 1961. It's standing room only. The area was kind of old Florida. That's Howard McCurdy, author of the book Space and the American Imagination. It's working class, bunch of restaurants that only serve chili or hamburgers that are mainly beer halls and hangouts for bikers. And so there's kind of a grittiness to it. A band is about to take the stage. They're called the We Three Trio, and the crowd is giddy, waiting to hear the song that's been bringing in capacity crowds to the Holiday Inn for weeks. Here at Cape Canaveral, the astronauts are already. They will pave the way into space for the USA. They are guys with wives whose lives are just ordinary. Thousands of people have descended on this small beach town, and they're all here for the same reason. Well, you go to the bars at night, you might find an astronaut there. I'm Tobias Black, and this is Artifactual, from 1895 Films. A few years ago, 1895 Films began work on a documentary about NASA's Project Mercury called The Real Right Stuff. It was designed to be a companion piece to the Disney Plus scripted series called The Right Stuff, based on the Tom Wolfe book. Associate producer Devin Jouer worked on that documentary. The documentary spawned out of a companion piece to this Nat Geo scripted series. Our team, having experience with a lot of archival space documentaries before, uh, decided to make an archival documentary uh, outlining the history of the Mercury space program and basically the early space race to basically explain, you know, what was the makeup of these astronauts and why does somebody get on top of a giant rocket and decide they want to go out into space. As usual, the process began with the researchers and producers tracking down as much material as they could find. Footage, tape, photos, documents, anything. Then they started the laborious process of looking through it all to see what bits might be useful for the documentary. A lot of what I was looking for was footage that kind of captured the astronaut fervor, especially in like Cape Canaveral. So looking for, you know, people going to hotels or restaurants with astronaut or space themes and basically capturing that space craze. And then uh, came across this clip. It was part of a larger compilation or a larger story just following Cocoa Beach and preparing for Alan Shepard's flight, the first uh, manned Mercury mission. And it's going through it and there's some interviews with the astronauts. There are some shots around the town and then it it cuts to this shot inside the club in a hotel. I think it was a Holiday Inn. And you hear a little bit of, uh, of, of music come in. Here at Cape Canaveral, the astronauts are already. They will pave the way into space for the USA. It's a little simple pop number that basically goes through... Uh, <laughs> 
saying how the astronauts are all already and saying basically listing off the astronauts' names. John Glenn, Grissom, and Shepard, too. Astronauts who really have come through. Clayton, Sherrard, and Cooper passed. Carpenter's bongos are a blast. Oh, let's all dream the toast to the men, the most in missiles. And cheers to the man who's going out in The band is called the We Three Trio, and so there's three members. It's two two gals and a guy. The We Three Trio consisted of Ruthie Warren, Jim Lieber, and a third member, sometimes listed as Francoise Lieber and sometimes listed as Marcel Francois. They seem to have been regulars on the Florida lounge circuit in the late 50s and early 60s. Sounds like any sort of like 50s or 60s group that was probably touring around these small towns. It's such a kitschy song, but it also does exactly what we're looking for, which is capture a time and place and feels unique. It just has that that perfect specificity that we're looking for. That's like, this is what was going on right leading up to the launch. And clearly the entire town and area was just building up the hype for for the program. To me, there's a question built into all this. Why were people gathering in a Holiday Inn to sing songs about astronauts? Remember, these were test pilots, members of the military. When was the last time you heard a pop group unironically singing a song about their favorite government employee? Why had the astronauts become such a pop culture sensation? To help answer that question, I spoke with Professor Howard McCurdy from American University, who wrote a book called Space and the American Imagination. Well, the Mercury astronauts were, the, were our representatives on the battlefield of the Cold War. And, and as such, when they were introduced to the American public, we were in effect sending them off to war, preparing them to go and do battle in the spacecraft. These, these were the frontline warriors. These were the people who were going to war in a demonstration of technological prowess, like knights jousting on an ancient medieval field. But why was this demonstration of non-military technical prowess so important? If the spacecraft worked, that would reassure us that our technology was superior to that of the Soviet unions and would eventually convince the Soviet Union that with their lesser economy, they couldn't keep up with the United States in an arms race. That the nation that was first in space would win the Cold War. The country with the best toasters and refrigerators and space program is going to win the Cold War, and will. So there was a lot of national pride pinned on the success of these flights. Not least because the United States had already lost the first round of the space race when the Soviet Union launched the first satellite, Sputnik, in 1957. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. The United States, of course, had a rival orbital satellite program and felt that they had a good chance to launch first. So when Sputnik launched, it was a huge disappointment to NASA. It could have launched in October. And uh, instead, the Russians were able to put that together first. That was a huge deflation for people who were in the industry and wanted to be first. 
So when the Mercury astronauts were announced on April 9th, 1959, it seemed like the U.S. might get a second chance. These men, the nation's Project Mercury astronauts, are here after a long and perhaps unprecedented series of evaluations which told our medical consultants and scientists of their superb adaptability to their coming flight. It's my pleasure to introduce to you, and I consider it a very real honor, gentlemen, from your right, Malcolm S. Carpenter, Leroy, Leroy G. Cooper, John H. Glenn, Virgil I. Grissom, Walter M. Shira, Alan B. Shepard, Donald K. Slayton. These ladies and gentlemen are the nation's Mercury astronauts. The press corps stood up and applauded when the Mercury astronauts were announced by NASA. The press, I mean, the normally jaundiced, cynical press members, they went crazy. And the public goes crazy, too. People love the Mercury astronauts. They're treated like real-life superheroes, and they all become massive celebrities with fan followings. They make a deal with Life magazine, giving the publication exclusive access to their life stories. I don't think anybody in NASA knew how strongly the media would react to the uh, Mercury astronauts. NASA had had pilots before out at Edwards Air Force Base, and nobody went crazy over them. Chuck Yeager was notable as an individual, but he wasn't hounded by the media in the same way that the Mercury 7 astronauts were. Nobody knew what superstars the Mercury astronauts were going to be. Nobody anticipated that. And the first sign of it was the reaction of the press. It was just, they went ape at the introduction of these seven individuals. And it caught on in a a way that was immediately recognizable to the media people at NASA. And at that point, they realized two things. One is they had to get control over the behavior of the astronauts so they didn't embarrass the agency. And uh, secondly, they wanted to take advantage of it to publicize the importance of the program and get the resources they needed to do the work. So it's that unique blend of genuine enthusiasm with carefully crafted PR that makes tiny Cocoa Beach into a tourist destination, where people come and stay at the Holiday Inn and listen to songs about astronauts while they try to catch a glimpse of one in the flesh. Here at Cape Canaveral, the astronauts are already. They will pave the way into space for the USA. But then the wind is taken out of NASA's sails again. On April 12, 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin is launched into space. He completes one full orbit, more than is planned for in the first Mercury flight, to be taken by Alan Shepard the next month. But there's nothing to do except proceed as planned. On May 5, 1961, after years of preparation and training and delays small and large, Shepard straps himself into his Freedom 7 capsule which sits on top of an 83-foot-tall Mercury-Redstone rocket. Cameras and tape running. Affirmative. Roger. Ready to resume the account, uh, STE. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Stoney. Uh, verify. Okay, Stoney, take it over. Roger. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 
Alan Shepard's flight lasts 15 minutes. He lands safely in the Atlantic near the Bahamas. The mission is a success. We don't know exactly what became of the We Three trio after their brief moment in the spotlight, but we did find a 2010 obituary for Jim Lieber, which says that he entertained in quote, thousands of venues all over the country before retiring to Toledo, Ohio in 1985 at age 60, where he continued to play in local clubs. But we do know what happened to NASA after being beaten by Yuri Gagarin and the Soviet Union for the second time. They had seen Gagarin's flight coming, and they moved the goalposts again. Here's Howard McCurdy. When the memo came forward to President Kennedy from Lyndon Johnson, answering the question, what can we do to beat the Russians in space? Johnson said, we've already lost the race to put the first human in space. Uh, we'll lose the race to put the first woman in space. We won't be the first nation to put a station in space, but we can be the first nation to land on the moon. To beat the Russians meant beat them to the moon. On September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy mounted a dais at Rice University and walked up to the podium. The exploration of space will go ahead whether we join in it or not. And it is one of the great adventures of all time. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. It almost makes you want to sing. Thanks for listening. This episode of Artifactual was written and produced by me, Tobiah Black. Our producer is Will DePagne. Fran at 17th Street Audio did the mixing and sound design for this episode. Our executive producers are Tom Jennings and Ellen Farmer at 1895 Films. If you want to learn more about our documentaries, you can find us on Twitter at 1895films or at 1895films.com. And if you want more Artifactual content, you can visit our website artifactualpodcast.com.